Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Hey there, Happy New Year. Welcome to the 2020 edition of Blockhead. Hope it's been a wonderful holiday season for you. It has been for me. So the weather's cooperated. It's been kind of a, a warm and weatherless holiday season, and it figures the year that I buy snow tires. First time in like forever I bought snow tires, and there's no snow, of course. You know, that's the way it goes. <laughs> I'm not asking for snow, I'm just saying. Uh, So we get off on a good footing for 2020, and I hope it portends great things to come. We've got Rick Stramoski of Soup to Nuts here today to talk about his wonderfully funny comic strip Soup to Nuts and all those great characters, Andrew and Roy Boy and Babs and and a wonderful family strip, which is missing from the comics pages after 18 years. Soup to Nuts ended its run in 2018, and so we ask Rick, where can we get our Soup to Nuts fix today? Where can it be found? And the answers are here on the podcast, so be sure to listen closely for that information. And you've got to listen to the whole thing to find out. Uh, Lots to talk about today. Rick has had a great career, both as a cartoonist and an illustrator. From greeting cards to uh, president of the National Cartoonist Society for a couple of years, to several different forays into syndication and what he's doing now that he's left syndication. We get into a lot of material today. It's a two-part interview. It is a long interview. I think this is the longest interview I've done so far. So there's a lot of uh, ground to cover. I'm going to keep this really short. Let's get right into it. Rick Stramoski and myself in conversation. Hello, Rick. Welcome to Blockhead. Oh, hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. I love Soup to Nuts, have loved it for a number of years. And, well, it's it's just great to talk to the guy who created that. I miss it. I miss it on the comics page because it's not there anymore. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it ended in uh, May of 2018, but it actually has a second life on Patreon. I've started it. I reformatted it. It's more of a long-form a comic, and it's now called Andrew's Journal, and it's predominantly uh, the featured character is Andrew, who was the youngest, and he was the one character, I think, uh, judging from the emails I've got over the 18 years that I did it, uh, was the most popular character, so I've kind of been focusing on him. Andrew is <laughs> Andrew is like just one of those characters who jumps out at you, and, and right from the start, he's the star of the strip, you know, just he's just one of those characters filled with charisma, so... Uh, it's a natural, I think. Yeah, he, um, uh, most of my readers uh, were drawn to Andrew. They're also, um, there's a, a significant number of readers that um, kind of relate to Roy Boy, who's kind of sort of the, the villain in the in the strip. But, but Andrew's this, just a sweet little naive little boy who, um, he's very feminine. Um, he wears capes a lot and he, play, <laughs> he, he plays Barbies with his sister. And uh, uh, he tries sports, but he's not very good at it. You know, his favorite part of a Little League game is um, looking for four-leaf clovers in right field and uh, the popsicle after the game. So um, 
I, I got a lot of emails from people over the years about Andrew, um, most of them really positive. And uh, Andrew's kind of like the little boy that was always picked on in school and uh, picked last for games. And um, a lot of people, readers that uh, related to him said that was me growing up or that was my brother. And uh, they, they appreciated the fact that uh, this type of character uh, is portrayed positively on a comics page and, and that this kind of character is on a comics page um, at all. So, cause this is, this is a character you don't normally see um, in the comics, in the daily comics. So. No, you don't. And I have to tell you, okay, I love Andrew. I love Andrew. And, and I'm one of those people. Okay. I suppose it's revealing a little bit about myself, but I relate to Andrew uh, completely. And as a kid, I was just as awkward, but the wonderful thing about Andrew is that he does not come across as being, he's filled with enthusiasm. He's filled with enthusiasm and he doesn't come across as awkward or, or, uh, you conflicted uh, about himself. He, he is who he is and he loves who he is. Yeah. He's very confident in, 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 you know, his makeup. He, he, he doesn't care if people make fun of, you know, how he acts or walks or talks or um, the glass is always half full for him. And like his brother will, you know, break all of his crayons and he'll say, now, what do you think of that? And we'll say, well, now I have twice as many crayons. So <laughs> uh, for him, it, it's like I said, the, the glass is always half full for Andrew. And I, I think that's important uh, to consistently have him. I and he has his fears and things and he has his doubts about things. But uh, by and large, he's he's very upbeat and he just rolls with the punches. Well, I think one of the things that stands out is exactly that is his optimism and his, again, his exuberance and enthusiasm and his positive outlook. And that's a hard thing for kids who are growing up who like me or other kids who felt like they were a little like I was a little guy. And uh, I also was interested in doing things other than sports. And, and I wasn't great at sports, although I really enjoyed sports. But still, uh, I was the kid who was always last picked and the one who was picked on most of the time. So I related to that. And I think one of the things that happens with kids is that it, it, a lot of kids who find themselves more or less on the outside of of what is considered, and, and I use this word hesitantly, uh, normative behavior uh, or gender norms or whatever they are, there is a, a lot of times if they're not supported, there's a sense of, of conflict within them. Uh, why aren't I like this person or why, you know, I'm not making friends or my friends are picking on me because I don't behave this way or, or you try as hard as you can to be like the other guys. And if the wonderful thing about Andrew is, is that he's not worried about that. He's who he is. And I think that's fantastic. I, I, and again, growing up, it would have been great to see a character like that, you know, when I was a kid. Yeah. I think, uh, portraying Andrew as a positive, you know, regardless of whatever happens is, is an important message for young people, you know, struggling, struggling with their identities. Um, um, over the years, I've gotten emails from people that, you know, accusing that Andrew's gay. Andrew's, you know, he's a homosexual. And, and it was usually done in a negative way. And I said, well, Andrew's like six years old. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he's not really thinking about sex right now. He's just thinking about things that he likes. And, and whether he's gay or not is irrelevant. I mean, he, he has a crush, you know, on little girls in his class. But he also thinks the brawny towel man is really attractive. And um, it, he's, he's just... Uh, he's just a normal, you know, little child who's who's trying to find his way. And 
um, I think that's what resonates with people that he's not stuck in any one like uh, mold. Uh, uh, getting to the back to the sports thing, it's like he he he's terrible at sports. He's awful. He he could barely hit. He you know, he plays baseball and he can't hit the ball. And uh, he actually I had a series uh, one week where he actually made contact with the ball and he had to run around the bases and it was going to be the first time he actually hit a home run. But as he's rounding third base, he sees this dandelion and he stops and he <laughs> he picks it and he gets tagged out and his coach, you know, asks him, you know, what, what were you thinking? And he says, well, I picked this for you. And, and it was just to him, that was more important than, you know, scoring, you know, uh, you know, he stopped to smell the roses. It just happened to be in the middle of a, uh, home run trot so <laughs> he's just a different little kid he's a different kind of boy what i love about that story that you just told is both the it calls to mind our priorities and the things the things that we prioritize in our culture and implicitly it critiques them but it, it does so in a way that is very funny and very light but it's a serious consideration. And it also takes a trope that is frequently used in other comics, and in particular in Peanuts, and it finds another way of, it reinvents it, is what it does. And I think that's that's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I've, uh, I've always been happy, you know, drawing Andrew and that relationship. You know, I, I, we, I think we all have Andrew in us. Um, uh, I was Andrew for a while growing up. Uh, I grew up in a very large family. I have, I have 11 siblings, and I'm right smack in the middle. I'm the seventh. And so I had this experience of being the youngest in the family and then being the middle child. And then eventually at some point, you know, after my older siblings had grown up and moved out of the house, I was the oldest for a while. And uh, so I kind of have that perspective of all three characters in my comic strip. And um, so I tried to portray that as best I could. <laughs> so uh, at one point or another, you were Roy Boy. Uh, yeah, I think we all have a little bit of Roy boy in us. You know, I wasn't, I, I don't want to think of myself as, as, you know, as a bully, but I, but I recognize Roy boy and I recognize Roy boy as, you know, he's, you know, he's, a, he's, he's got his soft side as well. I mean, he, 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 um, uh, there are things that he does that, um, are out of character, but primarily he's just kind of a adult. I mean, he's, he's thick, he's clueless, he smells bad. You know, he picks on his little brother, but he'll defend his little brother, you know, if things go wrong or, um, in fact, I did a story where, um, it was about almost two weeks where Roy boy was on a playground playing basketball and this bully came up, this older boy, and, uh, he was just torturing Roy boy. Like he was going to take his basketball and he said, you let's, we'll, we'll play for your ball. And uh, Roy Boy said, well, this is my ball. It's got my name on it. And the, and the bully was saying, well, we'll, we'll shoot for it. We'll play a game <clears throat> and there will be shirts and skins. And uh, instead of shirts and skins, it was pants and underpants. So he made Roy Boy take his pants off. So Roy Boy was playing basketball in his underwear. And uh, uh, Babs and Andrew were walking by and they saw Roy Boy like, why is Roy Boy being, you know, playing basketball in his underpants? And it dawned on Andrew that, you know, Roy Boy's being picked on and he went ballistic. I mean, he just ran across the street and he just went aped on this on this bully and, you know, chased him off. And, and Roy Boy felt really kind of bad about it. You know, he says, you know, you know, I'm always picking you. I'm, I'm your I'm always bullying you. How come you're defending me? He says, well, you're my bully. You know, that's and it was a it was kind of a sweet story. And I got a lot of emails and mail about it um, that Andrew, you know, had this 
you know, moment of just sheer anger that his brother was being picked on. And, and as actually from experience, it, it happened to me when I was in grade school, my little brother, you know, who I didn't get along with for a while, for a long time. Uh, it was, it was mischief night. You remember mischief night? It was like the night before Halloween mm. and uh, older kids would go out and they would egg cars or they would soap up windows. And we were walking home from school and I was on the other side of the uh, street and this older boy, I think I was in third or fourth grade, threw an egg and hit my brother who was in first grade in the leg. And I just went nuts. I mean, I just infuriated him. And this kid was like three or four grades older than me. And I just attacked him. It was like this. I said, you can't be picking on my brother. And I just, I, I, I didn't beat him up, but I scared the living crap out of this guy and he, he ran away. And so that was an experience that I put in the comic strip that, um, that I think could resonate with people because it's, it's just, and in fact, a lot of us, we draw from these kinds of experiences when we do our comic strip. Oh, sure. Absolutely. There's always, you know, a, a large part of, as Charles Schultz said at some point or another, you got to draw from everything over the course of however long your comic strip lasts, whether it's 50 years or 18 years or, or five years, you're going to be drawing from everything that's happening in your life. Right. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about what the inspiration for Soup to Nuts was. It's a it's a strip about a family. It's about obviously it's about Roy Boy. It's about Andrew. It's about Babs and their parents. And so is that was the inspiration your own family? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Everything. Pretty much everything I wrote about in, in Soup to Nuts was autobiographical. Um, <clears throat> I I couldn't do a strip that had twelve people in it. Just way too many characters. But uh, Babs is kind of like a uh, a mix of all my four sisters, you know, they, they were all, uh, pretty smart and they're, they were, they were the more level, level-headed people in the family. Um, and, uh, so that, and they are all redheads. So, um, <coughs> that, that's why, that's why Babs looks the way she looks. And, okay. uh, and Roy boy is kind of like the old, you know, your typical older brother, you know, that picks on, you know, the younger brothers and, uh, is kind of heavy and, Kind of slovenly and his hygiene is suspect sometimes and um so that, that and all and i'm not saying that any one brother or sister in my family was like that it was kind of like a uh, a pastiche of, of elements from one brother and one sister or one another brother you know put together and and, and parts of myself as well some of these stories are really funny, but also uh, they're really touching. The story about the bully is it certainly resonates. And uh, each of us, when it comes to our family, we can criticize and pick on our family members uh, as much as we do. And particularly with kids and, and siblings, we do it all the time. I mean, to the point at which sometimes it can be kind of nasty. And yet when somebody from outside starts to pick on people within our family unit, that's a different story. And, uh, and then and that's when the defense mechanisms really kick into high gear. Yeah, I think that comes from our animal brain. You know that this is, you know, I share DNA with this particular sibling, and that you know when you're attacking them, you're in a way you're attacking me. Um, but I, I also think that you know we, as much as siblings don't get along, um, I think deep down there is there is that connection, and um, regardless of. Uh, you know, how things plan, you know, plan out throughout your life. Uh, if your sibling is being taken advantage of or being hurt, or you, you're, I think a natural instinct is to is defend them. Sure. Because it's just, I think it's built into our, you know, our, our animal brains that we need to do that. It's, it's like a survival mechanism. 
It is. And and you have a very large family. So I'm interested in two things. You know, one, uh, where you grew up and and what your your youth was like and your, your childhood was like. And also how you get along with your siblings now when you're adults, because that's a that's a very big family. And that's got to be quite complex in terms of its dynamic. It is. Um, I think my favorite time growing up was we <clears throat> I have, there's 12 of us on the 7th. Uh, we never had all 12 living in the house at one time. You know, at, there was points, you know, where uh, older siblings move out. And then my mother had another baby. So it was like it was it was like living in a bowling alley. Actually, it was just so noisy. And um, but my favorite time of my life is probably when we were at our uh, probably our poorest. We lived in a very small house in Edison, New Jersey. Um, we had 10 kids and two parents living in a 1200 square foot house and it was one bathroom. And um, so the, the upstairs of this house was um, it was like a dormitory. It was just one big, long room with these vaulted ceilings. And, you know, there was beds, you know, lined up, you know, on either side of the wall, you know, both sides of the room. And some of us, you know, we slept together like my, my I slept with my brother Tommy for a number of years. So we had to share a bed and um which is another funny thing. My brother, Tommy, uh, he was older than me. So he, he would get up, he would get, be allowed to stay up an extra half hour. So, um, I would be going to bed and then, and it was time for him to come to bed and I would just be entering REM sleep and he would climb into bed and he had this annoying habit of rocking himself to sleep <clears throat> every night while singing the theme songs of television Westerns from the 1960s. <laughs> so, uh, so I'd be lying there trying to sleep and he'd be rocking back and forth, you know, singing the theme to Bonanza or uh, Cheyenne and, and uh, it would just drive me crazy. <clears throat> and so I would always get back to him. I'd wet the bed. So, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting uh, environment to grow up in. Uh, we were Catholic, obviously, given the number of us. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, if you read Sub to Nuts, there's a lot of Catholic references, you know, they, they go to Catholic church. And uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, it was, um, it, it was, Kind of a, a, a gold mine of humor, you know. But there's also pathos too. And there's, you know, there, we don't all get along. You know, I, I, I have some siblings. We don't, we don't speak. Uh, I've had s- several siblings pass away. Um, so it's been a, it's been a trying time. Uh, but I think we work these things out through humor. And I always tried to do it in a, in a funny way, and but also in a, in a gentle way when I did soup to nuts because it really was an autobiographical strip. And um, some some of my siblings liked it. Uh, some didn't. Uh, they thought I was you know, t- t- telling too many secrets. And um, But I, I think that you find that everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's not, I'm not the only person doing this. So, Well, it's hard. Autobiography is hard in that regard when, when those, there are those you care about who are still around and, and they're going to read your work. And it, it always comes, I think one of the hard things about that is, is coming up against that idea. Well, somebody is going to read this and, you know, I know they're not going to like it or it's going to rub them the wrong way. Even sometimes, even when you, you mean something lovingly, uh, it can be taken the wrong way. You just don't know how they're, they're going to. Uh, oh yeah. That, that's, that happened all the time. Um, not just from my family, but actually mostly from the public. Like they would take something completely out of context. I once had a um, evangelical, usually the evangelicals, they would take something, because I was always making fun of um, religion, because there's a lot of humor in religion. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but sometimes, sometimes I'm not even doing anything. Like in one particular comic strip, um, and I did this quite often, uh, if you paid attention to the strip, 
usually in the background there'd be like uh, a picture frame and in that picture frame it would be in all three panels and something would change in the strip either i would put iconic portraits of comics that i've loved and you know throughout history or i'd have something like a like a sailboat would be sailing on a you know sea of water and in the first panel the second panel it would be sinking and the third panel would be gone and but it would have nothing to do with you know the joke or the gag that i was writing it was just a visual element to see if any readers were paying attention and i kind of borrowed that from uh bill holman who was a cartoonist who drew um smoky stover he always had these really fun little easter eggs all the time floating through his work and had nothing to do with the story but there was always these wacky things going on in the background and and I always loved doing that, seeing that when I was a kid. So I, I kind of borrowed that from, you know, Bill Holman and did that in my own strip. But uh, getting back to this one, Evangelical, uh, in this particular strip, Roy Boy was talking to his sister and he was eating a banana. <clears throat> it was just a visual device that had nothing to do with the strip. He was just, you know, they all have to be doing something. So he happened to be eating a banana. In the first two panels, um, they, it was a banana he was eating. In the third panel, it turned into an apple. Um, and I got the most vile email <laughs> from this minister in the Midwest accusing me of being a pedophile because the banana was obviously a phallic symbol. Oh, my God. And, and the apple was symbolized the seduction of the innocence. And uh, he actually had several members of his own church write me letters demanding that my strip be you know, removed from their newspapers. And, and I had this email exchange with him saying I... I kind of explain all this to him and I said you know sometimes a piece of fruit is just a piece of fruit yeah and, and you know you you need to get your head out of the gutter and uh on a psychiatrist couch where it belongs but um, oh my gosh I, you and, know that that just blows my mind but go on yeah, please it was crazy so um and he kept firing back at me no 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 I know exactly what you're doing I know you I know I've seen your kind before and um I looked up his website and I think he was fighting his own demons because he he always popped pontificated about you know, you know seducing children and this he had this pedophilia you know phobia uh not not, not defending pedophilia but i think he was fighting his own demons because most of his website was devoted to that and so uh, for the next several weeks in my strip i was just putting fruit everywhere i would have just you know fruit overflowing bowls i would have uh, i had drew andrew wearing a carmen miranda hat once and um, a bowl of fruit would turn into you know an overflowing bowl of fruit it just just I just purposely put it in there just to <laughs> it's kind of tweak this guy, um, but uh, it was an interesting exchange. But um, well, yeah, you know, but, I, I, it's the thing when you put stuff out in public, you just don't know how it's going to be, you know, responded to, and you don't know how people are going to take it. You you come from where you come from, but this is something entirely different, of course. You know, you're 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 being accused of something that is just abhorrent and wouldn't even cross your mind, but all of a sudden somebody's putting their own. Uh, psychological issues on on your work and that's you know you can't be responsible for all of that and, and uh, I, never, I never I never took it you know to the point where um, it, it really bothered me that much um, I've always found it amusing because I, I just know that there's always there's always going to be people out there looking for a fight looking for something to complain about they 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 more often than not would write a letter when they're mad about something but when they find something humorous or something they really like um, you, you rarely get letters like that because people just take, you know, things that they like for granted, but yeah. it's the outrage that motivates them to write letters. And, um, so I, I saved them over the years and, um, and I would always take pokes at certain, you know, political figures. And once in a while, uh, I would, you know, put politics in the comic strip and people would get mad at that. 
Uh, but politics is part of life. You know, there's, there's when there's issues of the day, you need to address them sometimes. And I would in my strip and I usually did it through Babs. You know, Babs is the mm-hmm. politically correct character. She's very, you know, she's very woke. Um, she's a vegan. She's mm-hmm. you know, whenever I want to talk about these kinds of issues, I usually did it through Babs. Mm-hmm. But I always got mail whenever I did it. And, and so, I think yeah. one of the things that, that people who aren't cartoonists doing work in the public don't realize is how much response you do get, particularly from a newspaper comic, uh, when it comes to issues uh, of the kind that you're talking about or issues that somehow or another rub people the wrong way. I know I was talking to uh, Terry Liebenson uh, early last year, and uh, and one of the things she mentioned was how she got mail, not about uh, sexual innuendo, you know, her strip Pajama Diaries was about a husband and wife raising children. And, and you know, it addressed, uh, you know, the uh, romantic matters between a husband and wife, very frankly, without any kind of prurient kind of views or, or whatnot. But uh, when she started to deal with allergies and peanut allergies, she got all kinds of mail. Oh, and, yeah. You never know what is going to touch a chord or what is going to upset people, but people got really, you know, uh, miffed. Some did uh, about the way it was portrayed in the strip, and uh, I, that happens. I mean, there's a great tradition of that happening uh, in in newspaper comics. Yeah, I, I, uh, reminds me of a story uh, Patrick McDonald once told me. He, um, we were talking about this very same thing, and he was saying that um, he once got a letter from a woman who was extremely angry about uh, Mooch's uh, speech impediment where we, he, you know, he adds an eight, an H to all of yeah. his So it's always just like, you know, um, you know, all that, wherever Mooch talks, he has that little speech impediment. She was just, just lambasting Patrick about how uh, cats don't have speech impediments and, you know, you're making fun of people with speech impediments and it's really hmm. not kind of you. And he said, he responded to her, he wrote her back and he just wrote one word. He said, Shari. Sure. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. You know, come on. There, there are things like that where you have to be able to introduce them into a comic strip. And I don't think Patrick McDonald has ever done anything that, I mean, the character is a lovable, beautiful character. And, uh, so that's a celebration. People have different modes of speaking, you know, and I had a sister with a, a speech impediment and I mean, gosh, it, it's a reality, uh, out I've, there. And I've, I've always approached this kind of thing. Um, in the same way it's just that um if you try to do a comic strip or or write something a book anything any kind of creative endeavor music that's and you try to please every single person you're gonna you're just gonna create something that's extremely bland boring or not good at all yeah Uh, writing and creativity is about risk you know you have to risk things uh you have to risk offending people you have to risk uh making people bored or you have to risk uh, making people be angry. Um, I think that's one of the great things about art is that it just can elicit an emotion just from an image or, and nine words. You know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a very powerful medium. Uh, for, and I think it's really mostly for good. And, uh, and, and, and people can be offended. I'm not saying they don't have a right to be offended, but that doesn't mean that they're right. It doesn't mean that your, your offense is going to change what I do. You can tell me you're angry about this. You can cancel your subscription over this, which I've always find ridiculous. You know, if, if you've enjoyed my strip for, I've, I would get so many letters like this. I've enjoyed reading your strip for so many years, but you, 
I don't like what you did today and I'm going to cancel my subscription. And I'm like, really? So when you have a fight with your husband, do you get a divorce every time? I mean, yeah. it's just, you can't please people hundred percent of the time. And, um, but you know, that's the nature of, of this business. So I always, I always try not, not to allow that kind of response to ever, you know, alter what I was doing. Cause once you do that, um, you lose the spontaneity and you lose, you lose the essence of what you're trying to create. You know, I, I relate to that so much, uh, because I think one of the things I, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I grew up, always wanted to please people. I was one of those people who just always wanted to please people. And one of the things when I first started putting stuff out on go comics, uh, it was different than comics I had done before was finding out, uh, first of all, the audience was different than it was for comic books and they're coming from a different place, but not pleasing people or doing things that they found eccentric because I was coming from a, a different place and my comic strip was a different thing. It was a kind of a science fiction parody and th the expectations were very different for it. And trying to handle not pleasing this audience every day <laughs> which it went on for like five years where the people as you said who enjoyed it didn't say anything but the people who didn't enjoy it were there every day and it was it was hard to deal with that it, it, it i found it very difficult to to juggle that you know where my creative impulses wanted to go against what people like seemed to like and didn't like uh, about the strip and uh, that's a really I think a difficult tightrope to walk uh, whenever I sat down to write um, I, I kind of started my career uh, mostly gag cartoons and uh, greeting cards and when I was first writing gags you know single panel gags and greeting cards I, I would have just a couple of people in my head about um, how would they react to this idea and my whole goal, we have, we had a friend of ours, she was a maid of honor at our wedding. Her name was Elise and Elise was, we just connected so well. We had exactly the same sense of humor. It was slightly twisted. It had a blue edge to it. It was, and it was always, you know, and we would just laugh so hard together. Um, more so than my own wife. I mean, I, I, I love my wife dearly, but Elise and I connected so well on this, you know, on humor. So whenever I sat down to write a greeting card, I always think I used to think, you know, what would make Elise laugh? And and if I had that picture in my head uh, of her, I, I know that this would make her laugh. I knew it would be a successful card or a successful gag. And I would say 99 times out of 100 and no with no exaggeration, um, those ideas always sold. Um, my friend Elise is no longer with us. She passed away about um, almost 25 years ago, but she was just a, a, she was a motivation. She's one of the reasons I'm a cartoonist. I mean, she, she motivated me, uh, to come up with very funny ideas. And, um, I think that's what cartoonists need to do. They need to narrow their focus instead of trying to please everyone, try to please someone like Elise, you know, what's going to make Elise. And, and you're, you're probably going to hit a home run when you do that. It's a great thought and a great way of, of looking at it. You know, you can't please everybody, but think of somebody who you share a sensibility with and and think about what's going to make them laugh or what's going to touch them or what's going to inspire them. And, and you're right. Uh, I think that's great. Uh, you know, having an audience in mind, whether it's an audience of one or an audience of 25 or an audience of, you know, 2000, whatever, uh, thinking of somebody else is a great way to help you shape and, and guide your sensibility. So that's really, that's a great idea. And I hope, uh, I'm going to put that to, to use the next time I sit down to write something. And I also uh, 
sometimes when I sit down to write, when I was uh, writing gag, when I write gags, um, and it can get you in a little trouble too if you do this. But I always think, what would make other cartoonists? What would make my peers laugh? And sometimes, um, what would make your peers laugh is not the same thing that would make the public laugh because their 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 sensibilities not not to insult the public, but they're a little less jaded than than us cartoonists. You know, when you've been doing this for a number of years, like most of us have, you know, I've been doing this professionally since 1983. Uh, there's not there's not too much you haven't thought of, you know, already, or you haven't, it seems like you're, you're kind of raising the bar more. You have to raise the bar a bit more uh, to make, let's say, Jerry Scott laugh or to make Patrick McDonald laugh or, you know, cause they've seen it all, you know, so you have to take it even to another level. But um, sometimes that, that level could be beyond what the general public uh, could understand or appreciate. So uh, it's, it's a little hooky dance you have to do. I mean, I know this is going to make, you know, Jim Borgman laugh or Dave Coverly laugh, but uh, is it going to make Joe Blow down the street laugh or is he going to be offended or is he going to be, you know, this is too cerebral. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, mix. Um, so it's, you're constantly thinking in these ways to, uh, you know, how can I fine tune this art form to where I want to really want to get it. So that's a pretty tough audience. I think that you're, you're talking about there are people who've been working as yourself, been working in, in this business for 30 or 40 years. And, uh, I mean, then you are, yeah. I mean, the level of experience, I remember, uh, you know, Paul McCartney was asked something about a, a one hit wonder band back in the I guess nineties or something. And he said something to the effect of, well, you know, if you want to know who I really respect, it's people who've been doing this for, you know, are still here after 20 years. And, uh, um, because at that point that's, that's the difficulty. I mean, get, it's one thing to do it for a couple of days. It's another thing to do it for a year, but it's a whole nother thing to, to write new material over and over again for a period of 20, 30, 40 years. That's, yeah, and and that requires an enormous amount of uh, imagination, and as uh, as Schultz often said, you have to dig out everything that you've experienced in order to uh, accomplish that. Right. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your beginnings in in the field. You start. You said you began in 1983. I know you came out of the greeting card industry originally, but you were also cartooning then too. Or I mean, in yeah. a lot of ways they're related. But I was kind of wearing a lot of hats. Um, uh, actually, my career started when I was in grade school because I used to <clears throat> remember when we used to get our uh, our textbooks and we'd have to cover them with brown paper, you know, when you. Oh, yeah. um, and I used to draw on my school school chums. Uh, they would ask me to do a drawing on their, you know, covers, and I would get, you know, I charge them a quarter, so I get my lunch money that way. Um, but my first uh, professional sale was was 1983. Uh, I actually still have the check. It, it's hanging <laughs> in the studio. It was for $10, no, $7.50, and it was Hustler magazine. Oh, and, my God. <laughs> uh, I have this check signed by Larry Flint hanging in my office. Oh, it my was, God. It was $10. I would probably would have cashed it. But for some reason, I said, you know, this is my first sale I've ever made. I'm going to hold on to it. And uh, probably threw their books off for years. Yeah, I was going to say, it messed up their books. <laughs> <laughs> Where is this $7.50? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I started selling mainly to magazine, uh, uh, single panel magazine gags. I was sending a lot to uh, a lot of men's magazines, a lot of women's magazines, a lot of family magazines, and uh, and it was uh, it was steady, but it wasn't enough to you know make a living at. And um, so I, I I started looking into uh, illustration, 
and that where all the work that you do for magazine gags is all spec work. And I know there's a lot of transition between magazine gags. You could turn them into greeting cards. And I did a lot of that as well, um, which I like because, you know, we got an advance against a royalty. And one of the good things about greeting card industry is that they're always looking for new designs every year. And if you have a good design, it could be in a line. You could get royalties from a good design for a number of years after you've actually sold it. So I was doing that. I was doing a lot of gag cartooning. Um, I started sending out promotional pieces uh, to different art directors in different you know, uh, disciplines like advertising, magazine publishing, newspaper publishing, and uh, started getting assignments for that. So um, at the peak of my freelance stuff, I was doing maybe I'd have a job board, maybe seven, eight to ten uh, jobs going at once. And some were you know, weekly gags, some were uh, gigs, some were monthly, some were every three months. So I was just building a client base over uh, a number of years from just promoting the heck out of myself. And in fact, at, at the height, I think 25% of my income I was devoting to self-promotion. And uh, and I was very, very busy, but it was just really daunting. <laughs> but I, sure. but I, but I, but I, I loved it. I mean, I, I, just, I, I was a cartoonist. I was an illustrator. I was, uh, you know, I was, I was didn't have to paint houses anymore. And that was the last, you know, real job I had was, I was a house painter in Los Angeles with my brother. And um, but I didn't have to do it anymore. So that's kind of where my beginnings were. And then uh, in 1987, I was syndicated uh, with Universal Press. Uh, Lee Salem bought a single panel feature from me. It was called uh, Dog and His Boy. And it never really got off the ground. And, and <clears throat> I learned a lot from that experience because um, if you're going to try out for syndication, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, everybody knows it's syndicates get like 5,000 you know, ideas a year from people and maybe they'll launch one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a guarantee that that strip's going to make it because, you know, to get into a newspaper, you have to knock someone else out. So uh, I had so many things going against me. A Dog and His Boy had so much going against it because, uh, one, it was a single panel. Uh, <clears throat> so that means that any newspaper that carried comics, there was basically at most two or three single panels on the page. And at the time, uh, back in the mid 80s, uh, those single panels were either the Family Circus, the Far Side or Herman. And they were wildly popular, you know, panels. So in order for me to break into any newspaper markets, it would have been really difficult. I, I wasn't going to knock out the far side or Family Circus. So we're Dennis the Menace, you know, the, the kind of the really established ones. Yeah. And so your real estate is very limited on, on those comics pages. So you have four shots where I realized, you know, it's better to do a comic strip because, you know, there's there's a lot more space that you can, you know, attack. You know, there's, you know, there's because that's essentially what it is. It's an attack. I mean, people, you know, syndicates fight for this real estate. And so if you do a comic strip, you're more apt to have a better chance of, of getting into a, a newspaper because there's more features that they can drop that may not be as popular. Um, but that that panel Dog's Boy ran for about nine months. And I found an old royalty sheet from it, and it was just horrible. I can't believe that I did this for nine months. It was, and back then syndicates, you know, really took advantage of artists and with with fees and uh, costs. And I think I was making like the strip was making about nine hundred dollars a month, and I my take was about eleven dollars. Oh, so man. everything else was being taken out. Eleven dollars uh, a month. Yeah. From, oh my gosh. Yeah, wow. it was hard. But I thought I was, it was, I was on the road to, you know, riches, you know. Sure, of course. So yeah. still doing it's indicated. It's a dream. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, they think it's the holy grail, and it's not. And so even if you're lucky enough to get syndicated, um, you know, one out of 5,000, 
of those one, uh, probably nine out of 10 new launches fail within three years. So it's just, it just doesn't. So I learned a lot from that first experience. And then uh, I just concentrated on my freelance work and for, you know, the next up until the year 2000. So it was like 13 years, you know, I was just working on my freelance work. And, uh, and I met Amy Lago through the NCS and uh, she was working at United Media at the time. And she just really wanted me to do a comic strip. And that's where Super Nuts came about. And um, so I just had, but I had other ideas too. I had a, a comic strip that was, uh, that was pitched. Uh, it was actually almost going to be launched by uh, King Features. I was working with Jay Kennedy on that. It was a development deal. And um, we just couldn't come to a, uh, an agreement on the contract because back then, uh, all, all contracts, uh, you, had to, you had to give up your, your copyright. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to do that. And so they, they said, well, we're not going to launch you. And I said, well, I can't, I can't give up my copyright. And right. so it, it, it was a, it was a newlywed strip. It was, it was, you know, again, autobiographical. I'd just gotten married. Uh, so I was writing about what it's like to be a young couple who just got married, trying to get on their feet kind of thing. And, uh, it was called a uh, wedded blitz. Uh-huh. And it just, uh, you know, we had, we developed it for about four months. Um, and Jay was ready to launch it, but the money people, I couldn't get past the uh, contract part. Um, so that went to mothballs. I did another uh, feature that, was sort of like a uh, Mother Goose and Grimm thing, but it was more uh, characters that were, you know, more of like from fairy tales. So there was a, there was this uh, misogynist frog that was always hitting on a uh, princess. There was this king and queen. There was a wolf. There was, you know, three pigs. There was, you know, that, I think it was too close to Mother Goose and Grimm. Uh, and so that, that didn't get, find any legs. Then I did a junior high school strip, you know, what it was like to be in junior high school. And, uh, so, so I had a number of projects that, you know, submitted and failed and all the while still doing my freelance work. And then Soup to Nuts came about. Uh, Amy asked me to do, you know, a strip. And uh, I just wrote about my family and it and it got syndicated. And it was in about 150 papers uh, at its height and uh, some really big papers. And uh, we did it for 18 years. Uh, it also was it was launched through the NEA package. And uh, United at the time had this uh they had two ways of selling your comic strip. They sold it a la carte, <clears throat> which a lot of the larger strips were uh, sold. Uh, but there was a, a grouping of comics that um, was in this package. So the, I think there was like 15 of them. And, you know, the Born Loser, uh, the Griswells, uh, myself, uh, there was just a strips that you're familiar with, but they're bundled together. And there was, those were always marketed to uh, mid and small size papers that don't have big budgets for comic strips. Right. You can get the whole package for like a hundred dollars a week and you could use yeah. any, you could use any or all of them. And that was for Monday through Saturday. Uh, every Sunday was, it was a royalty sale. So a Sunday sale, uh, you actually had to pay, you know, pretty much the going rate for what, what a Sunday page is. Um, most papers, uh, uh, who bought soup to nuts, uh, just bought it through the package or they bought it a la carte. There were some larger papers that I got royalty statements for. So I got a salary for the, for the, uh, you got a, you negotiated a salary, a guaranteed salary for the NEA package and then outside sales or royalty sales. So bigger papers like the New York daily news and the Hartford current, uh, those paid a, a royalty to me. syndicate. Mm-hmm. So, and typically, uh, with those papers, uh, the cost of Monday through Saturday, let's say it was a hundred dollars. You get paid for Monday through Saturday and then a Sunday sale would be a hundred dollars. So, mm-hmm. uh, usually a Sunday page equal the amount of you would get paid for a week. Um, 
for the dailies. So, um, and then nice. that was split with the syndicate. So yeah, it was a, it was a, I was sold two different ways. And so with the NAA package, uh, there were 600 subscribers to the NAA package newspapers that subscribed to it. So it was diff and, and the syndicate didn't keep track of the usage. They just kept track of the sales, like the, the bundle. They said, well, we sold a bundle to this paper, sold a bundle to this paper. So they didn't, they didn't actually uh, keep track of which strips were being used. And when they sell it, it didn't matter to them. They were just getting a flat fee for it. Yeah. Uh, but, but what I did, I, I wanted to know what papers were using me because, of course. Um, so in very early in my syndication, I did what's called a clip service. Um, they don't, I don't know if they still have it anymore, but you pay this company, uh, a certain amount of money and they, what they do is they they essentially have these little old ladies in every city in the country you know go through the newspaper and clip out a list of things that they are looking for so um they would say okay we're looking for this comic strip soup to nuts go to your paper and clip it out and mail it to us little old ladies be clipping out monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday you know every day of the same paper and i didn't really want that i just wanted to know which paper was actually using it one day would have been fine but i had to pay for all those other days <laughs> so <laughs> it was really expensive so i got i got this giant package in the mail uh, of you know oh, two weeks worth of uh, soup to nuts strips that are literally they're called clip services because they're clipped out of the paper with scissors and uh but i was able to figure out i was in at least 150 of those papers and um plus whatever I, I got through the actual royalty statements that actually told me which papers I was in. Um, so it was a complicated process, but um, yeah. it was, that's kind of why I always say it's like 150 papers because so, that fluctuates, it goes up and down, but I was sure. able to find actual 150 papers that were using it. And then what I did is I targeted those papers um, you know, for Sunday sales, you know, I would say, okay, let's, you know, are you using me Monday through Saturday? You know, can we do Sunday? You know, let's do a Sunday's kind of thing but um the syndicates doesn't don't like it when the creators uh try to sell their features <laughs> oh okay because it's their job they say yeah, yeah. it's kind of weird because uh, throughout my career as a freelancer you know i i had a rep and when i worked with my rep we were true partners i mean we taught we would strategize who we were going to target what kind of a mailing we would do you know, we're going to hit advertising firms this month or we're going to hit publishing firms this month, you know, that kind of thing. And one of the things that I liked about, you know, working with a rep is, you know, that she took 30 percent of any job that she got for me. But she also paid 30 percent of any uh, expenses that I had. So if we did a source book ad, she would pay 30 percent of the source book. Or if I bought a mailing list from Langerman lists, she would pay 30 percent of the cost of that and 30 percent of the cost of the postage. So it was a, it was a really a true partnership and we worked together which was completely different than syndication. Um, they absolutely do not want you in the sales part of it at all. So you're kind of in the dark as a creator. It was like, it was the, the it was almost adversarial, the relationship. Huh. It's the, the, yeah. Very counterproductive. It's so different from what I think is happening now. I know in conversations I'd had with a couple of people at different syndicates that one of the things they talk about is, well, okay, are you going to be pushing this on social media? You know, are you going to be doing, we expect you to do this on social media. And, uh, um, that seems to be there, there's a reliance on the cartoonist. And I know this is true at go comics, as well, uh, you know, the cartoonist is expected to promote it on social media. The the uh, uh, the syndicate or or Go Comics, Universal, you click is or or King Features, whomever is not going to be pushing it on social media. They have social media, but it's kind of limited 
compared to what the cartoonists do. So there's a big reliance. It's kind of a big shift, you know, that's happened with social media, at least as far as, far as what I can see. Uh, well, it's, I, wouldn't it's, mind, I wouldn't mind it so much. Um, and, and if, you know, pushing yourself, because we're all, we're all going to promote ourselves. But, mm-hmm. uh, but <laughs> if they share the revenue in a, in a more fair way, um, yeah. uh, the revenue stream is completely twisted. It's 75% to the syndicate, 25% to the creator. You know, if that, uh, I know the larger creators, the ones that are, you know, have more pull, you know, more, you know, pull like peanuts or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they can, they can pretty much write their own ticket, but for regular creators, you know, lower, lower echelon, mid echelon creators, um, they don't have to listen to them, you know, or, yeah. or it's like, you know, you're just, we're doing you a favor. It's, it was always adversarial and, and it was that it was true. In every syndicate that I worked with, I've worked with you know, with King, with United, with Universal Press, and it, it, it's consistent throughout the industry. It's uh, it's not a very artist friendly. Um, yeah. It's just I, I I just made so much more money and and had a better relationship when I had a rep. Mm-hmm. My rep was phenomenal, and she she got me where I was, and because we worked as a team. And then one of the things I liked about her too is that. Uh, she didn't have, you know, 50 clients. She didn't have 50 clients that she represented. She had eight or 10 and I was the only one that had humor. So I pretty much got most, mostly all of her humor uh, work. So um, when you get that kind of attention, it's, it's great. But um, in, in order to, if you, if you ask any syndicated person, you know, there's some that are, that are happy, but if you ask, is your syndicate doing enough for you and your feature um, to the person, they will say no, that they're not happy. Mm-hmm. And right to the top that goes everywhere so um something's wrong you know i mean something's wrong there so um but I, you know i'm out of that game I, I'm- well that goes to to the question i mean there are a myriad number of questions running through my head is there always my head is there always are when when i talk to somebody who's got such a great career and does such wonderful work but one of the things i, I that comes to mind right away and sort of jumping ahead but it it's pertinent to what you're talking about is, is, uh, well, what led to you leaving soup to nuts after 18 years and going out on your own, uh, and working a Patreon page? Um, obviously this conversation points to your dissatisfaction and, and I guess that is the, in a sense, that was the impetus. Yeah, there, there was a lot, you know, there, there was a lot of regarding, you know, why soup to nuts ended, uh, mistakes I've made, mistakes syndicates made, the, just the confrontational nature of it um you know i you know things don't happen in a vacuum you know people contribute you know in different ways why a feature does i wasn't paying attention to the strip as much as i should have um it was waning uh and you know i made errors and i admit it but um but it was also it was also difficult because I never felt I never felt the partnership that I did with a with a, with an artist rep that I ever did with a syndicate. And uh, I was working on other projects at the time. I was working on a graphic novel for two years, um, some young readers' novels I was working on, and I wasn't giving the strip as much attention as I should have. And there was also some personal things that happened in my life uh, that were pretty uh, pretty bad uh, personally. Um, and it was like a, like this perfect storm of things that came together and just seemed to just seemed to be the right time to end it. And it was well, 18 new, years is a long run, so it was know, a long run. I'm very happy that I was able to do it. It was a privilege to to do it. Um, 
the process was fun. It was great. I loved getting up and I was in the local boat here in Connecticut, uh, the Hartford Current. Uh, it was nice getting the paper every day and, and having my coffee and seeing my, my, my feature there every day. It was, it was really special. Um, and I do miss that. Um, but I think the future of newspapers uh, and comics in the papers is changing. I think that there are ways to, to do it differently. And uh, I do like having, even though my income has dropped significantly because of it, um, I do like the freedom that I have. I do like the fact that I'm doing other things. And uh, it feels like it's 1999 again. You know, I'm, wow. I'm wearing a lot of hats once again. And uh, it's, it's exciting. You know, I, I'm, the Patreon thing is, you know, still working to get it off the ground. But, you know, trying to find those fans that like Soup Nuts is difficult. I mean, when I was on Go Comics, I had 39,000 subscribers. Yeah, it's a lot of people. And um, if I could get a dollar a month from each one of those, that'd be great. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy. <laughs> but uh, it's just finding those you know, those readers again and finding that audience again. And it may not happen. It, you know, it might be, you know, the end of it. But I still like writing about Andrew. And I think Andrew's a, a really strong character. And uh, he really hasn't found his, the audience that I think he deserves. So um, I'm still focusing on that and working that out. But um, yeah, it, it was it was fun. And, you know, I've had three syndicated features. Um, well, there was another feature I did with Steve McGarry. He's my best friend in the whole wide world. And it was called Mullets, but that, right. that, that had another, a lot of things going against it as well. It's a crapshoot, you know. When sure. Things, and timing is really important, but it's uh yeah, it's a it, it could be a wonderful wonderful thing, and it could be a really frustrating thing at the same time. Well, and it, yeah, I understand that. And now I've I've spoken with over the course of the last year, I think, at least three uh, cartoonists: yourself, uh, Terry Liebenson, and Michael Jancy, um, all of whom are leaving syndication or have left already. And, uh, and in the case of yourself and, and Michael, uh, both running work on Patreon, um, Michael's still on go comics, but, um, uh, doing a, a weekly, uh, with the norm. But, uh, you know, I think there's this growing sense. It seems to be that independence is preferable, at least, uh, it, it seems to be, and it's got a potential that, uh, at least the, the business model that exists within syndication now seems to have some, some problems built in. And, uh, so, you know, specific, particularly for, for people who are already established such as yourself, I think, you know, connecting with your former audience, that's, that's the thing because they're out there. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who want to know, you know, what's going on with soup to nuts and how it's developing. So, uh, how often are you, uh, updating? Andrew. It's every other day. Every um, other day. Wow. Okay. I have some archive stuff that I, that I have, but I've changed it a bit to be, uh, I'm taking a lot of the, you know, I have 18 years of material. So I'm taking some of the storylines and, you know, one-off gags and making, you know, two page stories out of them. Uh, it's more of a longer format. Some, 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 sometimes I'm just putting old material up and redrawing it, reformatting it and putting it on the site. Um, but it's a, and then I talk about, you know, I'll do little animations. I've done a number of animations with Super. I love those. I love those. I see those they're, on Instagram. They're great. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Um, they're just they're really interesting to do. Um, they're, they're really time consuming, though. <laughs> and, I, and I have no animation experience at all. I just started playing around with iMovie uh, and 
essentially doing like onion skinning, you know, with the, the way they did it back in the, in the old days. So uh, it's really fun doing that and um, animating, you know, the gags that I've done on a couple of, I have a whole list that I want to do, uh, but it's a matter of getting to it. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a slow process, but I, I don't want to just, you know, get my old readers. I, I want to find new readers. I want some sure. new people cover it and uh, we're doing a lot of comic cons and art shows and uh, i'm doing a lot of different things i'm getting back to you know not just drawing on a cintiq anymore i'm going back to conventional materials and uh, selling my artwork online uh, original work you know getting commissions and uh, it's actually uh, it's 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 a lot more work but um it gets me out of my studio you know i really like the fact that i'm you know working and experimenting and uh, just finding more ways to be creative, and uh, it's it's been great. On your Instagram uh, account, which I, f- I follow and always look forward to seeing your posts, uh, you've got a lot of um, interesting one-off paintings that are done. Uh, they're almost like collage-like. Uh, you'll do, you know, you'll have sheet music that uh, has a Superman song on it, and you'll do, uh, you know, a version of super, your own version of Superman, and uh, or Mickey Mouse or Popeye or whomever. I love those, and uh, they seem to be just something you're doing for yourself. But uh, among the, along with the animations, which I've I've really enjoyed as well. I think there's a lot going on there. So two things come to mind. One is, where can can people buy those uh, those paintings, collages, original artworks? Where can they go to get those? And then the other thing that comes to mind is, do you have a YouTube channel for your animations? Uh, I have a Vimeo. I'm on Vimeo. Oh, okay. I'm there, but. Um, with the artwork, um, you can just contact me, you know, right through the through Instagram. I mean, I post them in, in places like uh, Facebook pages that are devoted to Popeye and or to uh, Betty Boop or anything like that. And just say, you know, if you're interested in this piece of art, contact me. And I've been selling a lot of paintings that way. Um, I also have done a few actual uh, uh, brick and mortar uh, art shows and galleries uh, here around here in Connecticut and sold some work that way. Um, and just people see the artwork and they ask me, is this for sale? And I'll say, yeah, yeah, that's, I definitely was. <laughs> so yeah, it's contact me directly. And I usually try to put that in the you know heading of Instagram or on Facebook. If you're interested in this, just contact me and work something out. And, um, yeah, so that, that's pretty much how I sell them. And, uh, yeah, I've been just experimenting with different looks and different, different mediums and different, uh, I found this really cool, um, I go to libraries a lot, uh, the libraries of my town, and uh, they, they have book sales, and they, they whatever they don't sell, they usually, if they can't put it back on the shelf, they, they take it to the dump or a recycling bin. And, and I go through these these books, and I look for really old books, you know, really ancient books, and um, found this great uh, 1905 atlas that had these, you know, ancient maps in it, and, and the paper inside of it is really interesting. It's very thick and really absorbent but it doesn't bleed it's mm-hmm. so I doing some you know just taking like uh, a page out of it you know just a map of new jersey and drawing you know the new jersey devil on it and or you know something from pennsylvania you know have a uh you know uh, oh what's the word i'm looking for amish you know person on it or i did a johnny Appleseed for someone commissioned me to do the johnny Appleseed uh, in canada because their son was an arborist in canada and uh, so i did a did this map of uh, Toronto and had John, a Johnny Appleseed on it. And, and it's real interesting. This paper is so it's 115 years old and it's really interesting to be drawing on this paper. That's 115 years old. 
And in these, I found these ledgers, you know, I, I do a lot of antiquing with my wife and I found these old, you know, antique, you know, like grocery store ledgers, you know, from like, I'd got, I got see from the, from the Waltons, you know, was, and they're just beautiful penmanship in these things. And they're from the early 1900s or the 1800s. And, you know, I'll take a page and I'll, I'll illustrate something on that page. And mm. the, the, the background of the, the writing of this, you know, 115 year old writing with my artwork on it is, is just an interesting, just the idea of the fact that I'm, I'm writing on something that someone in 1894 wrote on who would, who would know, you know, 125 years later, you know, that while you're writing down, oh, Martha Binns owes me $6 for some chicken feed, you know, that that would be a piece of artwork in 120 years. It was just, I just sure. like, I just like that idea, the idea of that. The same thing with the maps and the same thing with the, the other materials. I find a lot of the Popeye paintings and Betty Boop and Iconish paintings, there used to be these things called um, big little books. Oh, they, yeah. I love those. Yeah, they're, they're very pulpy, you know, thick, you know, boxy little books of uh, usually uh, newspaper comics or uh, animated, you know, features from the 1930s and 1940s. And and these were done on really cheap pulp paper, so they're they're kind of deteriorating from the acid in them. And I find them at tag sales and find them at, you know, on eBay for, and I, and I salvage them and I, I use them, I tear them up and tear the pages apart and find imagery. And I, uh, pretty much, uh, put a gel coat, <clears throat> use them on the canvas board and then I let it dry. And then I do the, whatever character on it, you know, I paint over it. So it adds a visual to it. So. Oh yeah, they're they're fabulous. I get a real big kick out of them. I love them. Um, I come from a, a I've had a, a different kind of career. I've done a lot of different things, and collage was a big part of what I did for a long time. I spent a long time doing collage work, and uh, so if you go to my website, you can you can see that there's a bunch of collage stuff. And I did a couple of comic books, alternative comic books that utilize collage all the way through, working with different materials, different paper. Uh, a lot of found objects, a lot of found um, uh, printed material, which, and I always, I just love bringing together disparate materials, disparate images from different periods of time, juxtaposing things that you wouldn't normally juxtapose to see what happens. And and a lot of times there was a period where I was doing the stuff that I, I thought of as like collage comics and or comics as paintings um, in the sense of, of combining these elements that were almost abstract but seemed to elicit different you know, thoughts and, and different ideas, uh, in a very kind of fluid and intuitive way. It, it was, it's a medium that I just absolutely love working with because it's surprising and it's always surprising. And, and it's a never ending source of, um, when you're working in it, never ending source of inspiration. You're just bringing these things together and they suggest something else that you never would have thought of otherwise. And, right. uh, and also, as you're talking about, you begin to appreciate the beauty of something like sheet music or the paper that you're talking about, the materials you're talking about. I had, uh, I have a collection of, of old Sears catalogs from the 20s and the 10s and the teens, and uh, they're great. Oh my God, the, the illustrations within them, the, you know, within are fantastic, but also just the the use of, of type and uh, right. the phrases, wonderful stuff. Anyway. It all kind of comes together. It's a, it's a, I think Linda Berry is somebody who's doing a lot of collage work in comics also. It's just a, a fertile ground. And of course, Jack Kirby, you know, did a lot of collage stuff too. And uh, that's where I always got my inspiration from. Um, and in that regard, but it's a fertile ground, I think, for cartoonists and, and comic artists. Uh, there's a lot that can be done with it, not only in terms 
terms of you know individual artworks, but in terms of comic books and and then uh, paintings and and even in animation, you could see probably playing around with you know collage in a way that hasn't yet been done uh, or or explored to its fullest. And when I talk about animation, I mean like independent animation, you know, the things that you're doing or I do or somebody else is doing, um, rather than you know large big spectacle stuff that have right. big budgets, but you know, there's so much to do with that. I think it's a great place to fool around. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what's been motivating me. I mean, um, just just the wide variety of ways you can just express yourself through art, and you know, not be tied to a deadline anymore. And um, you know, just you know, I'm you know in a in a position where I can do that since I had mm-hmm. career, and there's no we have no debt. You know, we're just we're doing fine. But um, that's great. It's kind of nice to. Uh, have the freedom to just do something different and experiment and play around. And, and one of the things I do I'm really enjoying is getting back to conventional materials, you know, just working with actual watercolor as opposed to digital watercolor or digital ink and uh, just getting your hands dirty. And, and mm-hmm. it's just, there's this tactile pleasure of actually working with real material that, that just, you can't replicate that on a, on a Cintiq. Cintiq was great meeting deadlines and and getting things you know way ahead of my of my of my deadlines so i can work on these other projects um but my i'm I'm really being drawn to just working with conventional materials now uh getting back to the roots you know just back to these dr martins that i've had that have been sitting there for. oh i love that stuff and uh and saying oh my god i gotta start using these again and you know it just there's something about that that's just uh it's very it's very zen you know it's it's relaxing and um yeah it's just something different new new stage in my life so well it's it's a very different experience as you said the tactile experience and this is great actually this is really cool because uh i spent a lot of years i came out of art school fine art tradition that whole bit and i spent a lot of time doing that of course i Comics was always my love. So, but I, I sort of went a circuitous route backwards in a way. And I spent a lot of time, you know, as, as I said, working in collage and with paint and all kinds of traditional materials for years and years. And then, and even still, I was my, when I was doing the comics, I was, uh, for go comics, I was using traditional materials, drawing on Bristol board and whatnot. And I wasn't happy with my scans. My wife got me into buying an iPad. I tried it and this is only two, two years ago, I think now. And it totally flipped my, you know, my way of working so that now I'm working with this all the time. And the experience of it is so distinct from working with traditional materials. I really relate to what you're saying about the Zen quality of working with traditional materials. There's a meditative quality that a screen somehow or another you know, your, your gestures, your arm movements are the same, but somehow that Zen quality that you're talking about, that meditative quality, it, it, at least I haven't experienced it yet, uh, through, although I love working on my iPad, I love, yeah, I love the, all of that stuff. You, you correct uh, your, your errors immediately. Oh uh, yeah. But it's like, it's like kissing someone through a window. <laughs> you know, it it kind of, it's kind of like, yeah, you're yeah. But you're not really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I just love the fact that how you know a, a rough stippled paper could you know grabs your pen nib or grabs your pencil point, and you know leaves this trail of material that's right there. And you and the idea that you can't change it. 
So you have to think about it more. You know, you, yes, you do. I, I'm really thinking about my my drawings. I'm I did a lot over Christmas. I was getting tons of commissions and people wanting artwork. So uh, you sit down and you know, with a Cintiq, it could be a little lazy and say, "Oh, I'll do it this way," and if it doesn't work out, I'll just undo it. Yeah. We can't do that with a piece of paper that's 115 years old. That's the only map of Idaho that you have. <laughs> so, and oh, they want you know, oh, they want a you know drawing of Mr. Potato Head or something on it. <laughs> and you have to actually think about what you're doing and, and plan it uh, where you kind of got away from that when you were when you were uh, working on a Cintiq or working on digital. So well, it, it, it's a different mindset. It is. I, I'd get these great, wonderful pieces of uh, uh paper heavy arches 100 pound paper you know and beautiful stuff and and really wonderful when you're working with dr martin's dyes and how it absorbs into the paper and you know the saturation of the color just love that stuff but i'd stare at that white piece of paper for like you know 10 minutes before i made a mark sometimes you know just because i'm like oh my god this paper it's so expensive you know and and if i screw it up but then if you do do something you you weren't intending Sometimes it kicks you off in a totally different direction, which may have rewards that are far greater than you imagined originally. Exactly. It's like, um, I, that's why it just amazes me when I see somebody like Ralph Steadman, who just goes, Oh, yeah. If you ever watch a video of him drawing, he attacks his arc. He just, he just goes at it. And he's just with a confidence of a, of, of, of a swashbuckler. I mean, it's just, it's amazing how, how he works. And, uh, I would love to get to that point with, with, uh, you know, pen and ink and really good paper like that. But I mean, I have a piece of Bristol board that's like 30 years old and it's gigantic. It's like, you know, two and a half feet by, by four feet. And I've, I've had it forever. And it's one of the best pieces of, uh, art material that I have, but I, I keep looking at it and I never do anything on it. <laughs> and it's just, it's, and I, did, I did one, I, I cut a piece off and I did this, uh, this, uh, it's actually my business card. <clears throat> it's this, this drawing of a cat in an alleyway. And I used, uh, just, uh, India ink and this brown, uh, clear wash. And, uh, it, it came out great. Um, but I'm just afraid to go out you know, use this paper because I, what if I mess it up, you know? And, yeah. and I, so that's how I feel. I've gotten away from, you know, that, that risk. So, oh, I'm sorry. Is that you? Yeah. <laughs> that's, my, that's my daughter. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I was That was one of the things I was going to ask. I, I, I know you mentioned your wife, but uh, uh, you've got a family too. Yeah. I have a daughter. She's, uh, her name's Molly and she's an extremely talented photographer. She, um, she's 25 years old. Uh -huh. uh, she went to Pratt Institute in New York city. Oh, yeah. And she, um, she works for the city of New York. She's a photographer. And, uh, oh, that's works, fantastic. Yeah, she works for uh, a division that's uh, it's called New York City Youth, and they have um, art programs throughout all five boroughs for kids that are at risk. They have music and theater and uh, right. dance, and she does all their videography and their photography and does their website and their promotional stuff. And uh, she's she's really talented, and she's got a lot of she's getting a lot of attention within the city of New York. There's um, she may be getting a, a, a I'm not going to jinx it. She'd probably be mad if I said it, but uh, she's, um, well, I'm going to tell you anyway, she's uh, Bill de Blasio wants her to work for him. So, uh, Oh, fantastic. Wow. Yeah. She's, so she's gotten their attention. So, um, so we'll see, we'll see if she gets Good that for her, but she's, That's uh, a great... yeah, she's doing what she loves to do. And, uh, 
for the past few years, I mean, she's been coming to the Rubens since she was a little kid. You know, we always mm -hmm. bring, um, uh, fam families uh, for the past 20 years, you know, Ruben people have been bringing. And so she has these Ruben friends, you know, she has uh, <laughs> there, you know, the, the, the Jeff Keen and his daughters and uh, Dave Coverly and her, his daughters. And so people, you know, all these cartoonists that bring their daughters, they kind of grew up through the Rubens. She has little kids and now they're, you know, well-established young women. And it's just kind of neat to see that. Um, oh, yeah. It's so yeah. gratifying. Yeah it's, yeah, it's great. You know, I I just uh, I'm a Pratt alumni too. I, I did my grad school at uh, oh, at Pratt, okay. so it's a great place. What a great school. I, she, I, she liked us most of the uh, class stuff, but she um, it, it's it's interesting because um, she went to a, a private school here in, in Suffield, Connecticut, called Suffield Academy, and it was an amazing experience. It was the best thing we ever did for her. It was a it's a small it's a small school. There's 400 kids in the whole school. There's 100 people for you know one 100 graduates every year, and it was such a sense of community. And they it was a great school because it really took her out of her shell because she was kind of a shy person growing up. But um, one of the great things that they did at this school was they Every week you changed the, the entire school ate lunch together and had meals together and you were assigned a table and every week you were assigned a different table with different people. So you got to know every single kid in the school, upperclassmen, mm -hmm. lowerclassmen, they all sat together. So it created this great sense of community and support and uh, it really uh, allowed her to blossom. So she really had a great high school experience. But when she went to Pratt, I mean, think mm -hmm. about students you know you know i was one of these art students they're they're surly they wear black all the time <laughs> everybody's an asshole you know i hate the jocks and everybody who's happy is not really happy and and so she goes from this environment to pratt and all of the students were like that there and yeah. and she, she, they would say they would make fun of her you're like rebecca of sunnybrook farm you know you're not, <laughs> she goes well i really liked high school I mean, you liked high school and so oh, she yeah. she didn't like that part of it but um she made some good friends there, but um, she and she also didn't like the fact that there were no business classes. And that's one of my biggest gripes with art schools is sure. they do, they never teach you how to be an artist. They teach you how to right. do work, but not how to be an artist. And it's a it's a horrible disservice that they do. I didn't go to art school. I didn't go to college. You know, there was no money growing up in a family. Right. Also, and in my family, you had to leave the house when you were 18. So I was been on my own since I was 18. But as a cartoonist, I taught myself the business end of it. You know, I got every book about business, about marketing, about promoting yourself, how to use mailing lists. I mean, I just taught myself and I passed this information on to my daughter uh, when she was in high school. And so when she went to Pratt, her first business class wasn't until the fall of her senior year, which is way too late. They should be yeah. taking that every semester of every year is how to promote yourself. So when she sat in the classroom, the the uh, teacher would say, you know, who has who here has a business card? And Molly would be the only one who ha knows how to write an invoice. And Molly would raise her hand and they said, who has a website? And she'd be the only one that has a website. And mm -hmm. these are things that are fundamental to being a creator, you know, and making a living at it. And and it's denigrated. It's like she, what, the kind of photography that she does, you know, they're teaching kids how to be gallery artists. Well, that's not every one of these kids are ever going to be a gallery artist. They're just not. There's no you know, it's it's such an insular industry to begin with and very political and very incestuous. And most of these kids are going to spend, you know, $50,000, you know, a year. So by the time you graduate, it's $200,000. You're going to have this house debt and you're going to be working at Best Buy because yeah. no one's, no one's going to want your, you know, collages of, you know, 
cat entrails, you know, tied to a tire, you know, and calling that, you know, it's just not going to happen. So um, she had to deal with that, that she wanted to do commercial work because commercial work is going to pay your bills and your fine art work you do allows you to do your fine art work. Well, yeah, and you're talking about an issue that's close to my heart because I'm in higher education. Obviously, it's that's what I've been doing for a long time, and and uh, um, that's one of the issues we grapple with. You know, uh, small art program uh, in Long Island at Adelphi University. That's where I teach, and uh, and one of the big issues that we've always struggled with as a faculty is is you know how to bring the real world into the discussion and uh, we have a wonderful course on on it's called emerging artist strategies and fortunately it's which is taught by one of our, our one of my great colleagues and and she does a wonderful job with it but uh that alone is not enough as you were saying to kind of set you up particularly as a commercial artist in the world and as, uh, finding a way to navigate and and handle things like student debt which is a huge issue and um Fortunately, we're a liberal arts college, unlike an art school, liberal arts college, we have a whole business school. And so, you know, a student who's going through that degree program can sign up and take courses in the business department. And we encourage them to do so because it's very important. If you are going to be an independent artist in any way, if you're not going to be relying on an institution like a university to pay your, your, your way, uh, you're going to have to find a way to support yourself just as you did. And, uh, and it is a very confusing world because I, I spent a number of years before I did this, trying to find my way through that world, you know, and, uh, failing miserably. (laughs) And and that's why I ended up, you know, in some sense, uh, heading towards, uh, an institutional framework because I could handle that better. I had no idea how it was. I was totally at sea when I graduated from school back in the early eighties. And, and, uh, um, you know, that, when you're out there and you don't have the network, you don't have the connections, you don't have any examples. And if you're not as, uh, don't have the, the kind of uh, foresight that you had, uh, to sit down and, and really learn about business, um, and the discipline it takes to do that, you know, uh, if there's no guideposts, you, you will end up leading a life that, that, you know, is frustrating instead of fulfilling. And, uh, that's, you know, that's not a recipe for a happy culture or happy world. And so, uh, we, we try to, you know, encourage our students to look in those directions, but it is a big issue. And, you know, I think it's a really important issue to consider. If you're an artist, you absolutely learn how to deal with business because. I, I also think too, uh, one of the, uh, just ingrained uh, or the built-in uh, hurdles that artists face, uh, especially people that are in art school that, that want to become artists, is how we think about it, how we think about art, and, mm-hmm. um, and how we think about making a living at art. Uh, yes. One of the first things that, because art is such a personal thing, how we see the world, how we express that, that, that view of the world it's very personal. It's it's us. I mean, what we draw, what we paint, what we see is is us, and and that's a very risky endeavor because what you do, when you do that and you put it out into the world, you're you're being judged. You're going to be judged. You're going to be people are going to look at your art. They're going to say, I don't like this, or this sucks. This is wrong, or this is bad. That's what you're risking as an artist. And one of the things that I immediately got over <clears throat> when I was doing this, and, th- and that's, this is one of the things that prevents people from becoming an artist, is that they want, they think they have to please every single person out there, that their work has to resonate with everyone. And it, that's just never going to happen. 
Um, when I was first promoting myself as a as a as a freelance artist and a freelance illustrator, I would buy mailing lists, you know, of, of art directors in all different disciplines, you know, advertising, publishing, magazines, and I would send, let's say, a thousand postcards, you know, and pay the postage for these postcards, and I would buy this mailing list and I would attach the labels and I'd mail these out, and I knew right when I was at the post office that. 997 of those postcards are going to end up in the trash. As soon as they get to the art director's desk, they're just going to go right in the trash. But it's those three. That was the three I'm trying to hit. And I've always approached it as, you know what, I'm not trying to please a thousand art directors. I want to find three or two or even one that likes me. Because if I get a job or a steady you know, job from these art directors, that pays for that mailing. And it was a slow buildup of those kinds of art directors, that, that kind of promotion, that kind of approach is, you know, don't think of your art as having to please everyone or it's worthless. It's going to be worthless to a lot of, in fact, the vast majority of people is going to see your work. You know, <laughs> but it's those three that are going to give you jobs that are going to pay for your house. They're going to pay for your child's private school. And you build up enough of those clients. I think at the most I had in a year, I had maybe 50 to 100 clients that used me pretty much all through the year which mm -hmm. is more than enough that's, you know? absolutely that's and, and so many times i would have uh i would do a promotion of two thousand pieces or four thousand pieces i'd spend a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars on a promotion and and i wouldn't get anything from it and then there would be six months of this going on i'm like oh my gosh this is terrible and then boom one month i get half of my year's income in just one month you know, of assignments. So it's being consistent and being, having a thick skin and understanding the process, understanding how this works. And I didn't go to school for any of this. I just learned this through buying books, buying business books, buying art business books, you know, teaching myself how this works. And art schools can do this. They can, they can teach this mindset, but they don't, they choose not to because they, they're they're there now just to collect you know money it's a money-making business for them and they're doing a great disservice to these people i when my daughter first started pratt i was i approached uh, pratt to say look i'll, I'll teach a two-week course on promotion you know of yourself as an artist completely ignored me had absolutely That's a shame you know yeah. and because i wanted to get a little break on my my daughter's tuition but, <laughs> uh, you know i'll do this for her but they they go out in the world completely unprepared for it and it's just important to go out with the right mindset you know i was tenacious you know early in my career i'm still tenacious about it but um I, I think we need to teach kids not just to how to draw but how to think and how to think conceptually uh, anybody you could teach anybody you could teach a monkey to work a cintiq or to do photoshop but it would always whatever it would always got me work was the way i thought about things the way i could read a uh, a body of text for a magazine and come up with an image for it that would encompasses what that article is about. That's mm -hmm. what you need to do. You have to teach kids how to think and how to conceptualize as opposed to, you know, how to lay this layer of Photoshop onto something else. You know, this is, this is what gets you work. It's not just your, your, your drawing skills, but your thinking skills. In fact, art is all about thinking. Um, yeah. So yeah. that, that's what I think art schools need to do a better job of doing. And it's one of the things my wife and I, and my wife is very creative as well. She's in a creative industry. She's in the garment industry and she does a lot of design uh, decisions and um, she's very, very good at what she does. So we've, we've always instilled this into our daughter. And so she, she, she got this great job 
even it's before fantastic. she graduated, um, because she did, she did the work. But uh, it's one of the things I, I my biggest bones of contention with art school, and I didn't go to art school. And I know, I, yeah, I had hundreds, hundreds of art directors uh, since 1983 that have used me. Not one of them has ever asked me where I went to school or what my grade was. You know, what, how were my grades? Where'd you go to school? Not one ever asked me that question. Well, that's part one of our interview with Rick Stramoski. We have a whole other hour or so to go for next time, so I'm going to try to make sure that's together and uh, edited and everything's in place by next week. So uh, be on the lookout for that. If you enjoyed this, there's more to come. And we actually get into talking a little bit about Charles Schultz and Peanuts, which is, uh, you know, ostensibly the topic, although cartooning in general is a topic, and any time we talk cartooning, you know the way I feel about it. We are doing honor to uh, the memory of Charles Schultz. In this case, you know, Rick is not the biggest fan of Peanuts, and he's got some interesting takes and thoughts on the subject. And so we get into that a little bit. Always interesting to hear another point of view, so be sure to check that out. You can find Rick on Patreon. If you want to find out what's going on with Soup to Nuts and you want to support Rick, uh, check out Patreon and look for Rick Stramoski. That's S-T-R-O. M-O-S-K-I and you can find new strips going up there every other day I think is is what Rick was saying so on Patreon and uh, give him some support help make sure that, that the story of Andrew keeps coming out on a regular basis I think that Rick will appreciate it and I think you'll enjoy it you'll get a lot out of it so be sure to check into Patreon and be sure to look for Rick Stramoski and uh, check into to the adventures of Andrew, right? Because uh, it's great stuff and uh, uh, really enjoyable. There's some folks to catch up on. I, I did want to mention, uh, you know, Dwayne Abel. Remember Dwayne Abel? He was on the show. I think it was in the summer and or early late summer was it? Dwayne was talking to us about his foray into television and cartooning with Dwayne, which is the the name of the show, is up and on YouTube. And it features Dwayne Abel uh, giving lessons and advice and talking to cartoonists about cartooning in general. So he's spreading the gospel, right? Uh, uh, which is, I think, just terrific. Who knows where that could go? But I think it's a wonderful venue for Dwayne and his abilities and talents. And it's great that he's bringing this to the public in, in that forum. So uh, check it out on YouTube. Look for Cartooning with Dwayne or just look up Dwayne Abel Cartooning. And it's D U. A-N-E-A-B-E-L, and uh, you'll find it for sure. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Keep in mind, the, the target audience is young, so uh, but uh, I think it's terrific, wonderful. Terry Liebenson of the Pajama Diaries has uh, left syndication, has put the Pajama Diaries aside, and is going to focus on her wonderful books, and I wish her the, the best in her future endeavors. But we're going to miss her on the comics page. I love the Pajama Diaries, and I'm really sorry to see it go. A little update uh, for a couple of our past guests, and... Um, and what about me? <laughs> I'm doing the same thing. You should check me out on Instagram, okay? At Grogan Jeff. G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. -F. I'm getting better at spelling my own name. I think that's it for now, okay? Uh, I will see you next time with more with Rick Stramoski and more about comics and cartooning. And, uh, and that's it. So uh, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.